in today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15, the first 35 verses. In the heart of a tumultuous dispute that threatens the early Christian church's community, a momentous gathering is called in Jerusalem to address a crucial question. Must Gentile converts first become Jews and adhere to the Jewish customs and traditions in order to be accepted into the fold? Well, tensions escalate, divisions deepen, but today we're going to get into the heated debates and the, well, unwavering conviction of Paul and Barnabas. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, August 14th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Our heartfelt gratitude goes out to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, our generous sponsor, and they translate, publish, and distribute Christ-centered materials around the world. They're a mission worth checking out. Visit them at lhfmissions.org, and the program also thrives thanks to listeners like you, whose prayers and contributions support KFUO's radio ministry. But this morning, join me in welcoming back to the program the Reverend Warren Wirth, He's the pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Worth, and welcome back to the program and the Book of Acts. Good morning, brother. I'm glad to be with you. Well, it's uh, interesting as we go through the Book of Acts. You know, this is a, a book of the Bible that, to be honest, in my 15 years of ministry, my short 15 years or so, I I haven't really done a lot of Bible studies on, and I've read, but as I'm as I'm reading through it deeply and intentionally with you brothers as my guests, it's just it's, I'm learning new things all the time. And today we come to a pretty, pretty important turning point in the way the church proclaims salvation right here at the Jerusalem Council. They have some decisions to make, don't they? They certainly do. Satan was trying to cause division, and they need the gift of the Holy Spirit through the Word to bring unity to the church. Well, let's, uh, let's start with some prayer, and then we're going to dive right into the text. Uh, if you would lead us in prayer, please. I would be happy to do so. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you brought us, unworthy Gentile sinners, into your family, the Church, by the preaching of the Gospel. And We pray, O Lord, that as we read your Word today, that we may find encouragement in your message that we are saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Open our hearts and minds to receive what you have to teach us today, that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I tell you what, why don't we figure out how we got here, right? So we have, the very first verse says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, obviously, we're going to read this text today, but but just starting with this issue, this malady, where is this coming from? Who are the ones who are uh, promoting this? Why are they promoting it? Uh, why do they need to make this decision at Jerusalem in the first place? Okay, well, maybe we need to go back to the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, where the <laughs> Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples, as Jesus promised uh, he would send the Spirit to them, when he told them that they would receive power from on high and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, 
in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we go through the Acts of the Apostles, we see Christ fulfilling his word, not only pouring out the Spirit on the disciples at Jerusalem, but then sending them further and further and further into the world with that life-giving, life-changing message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for us and for our salvation. And so not only were Jewish people being brought to faith in Jesus as their Messiah, but then uh, even Samaritans were brought into the family of God. And then uh, there were people who were Gentiles, but they were uh, proselytes of the gate. They had begun to hear about the Old Testament uh, promises of God, but had not become circumcised and so forth. So Cornelius and his household also heard from Peter uh, the wonderful works of God that were accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. And uh, as Peter was preaching to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they were baptized, and uh, to the astonishment of Peter and those who were with him, and so then he had to defend uh, what he did there, that people would understand, well, what do you know? I guess God has granted even to the Gentiles repentance and faith in Jesus. And so after that, then Paul and Barnabas had gone out on their first missionary journey. They went into the territory that today we would call Turkey. It was Asia Minor, and they preached in the, many of the cities there. And once again, the Holy Spirit worked through the preaching of the gospel, and many people were brought to faith in Jesus. Some of them were Jewish uh, when the preaching took place, first of all, in synagogues, but many of them were Gentiles who were also brought to faith. And the Lord worked miracles through uh, Paul and Barnabas, healings and so forth. And so uh, certainly God was demonstrating that he really did accept these people as true members, full members of the family of God, the Church of Jesus Christ. And then when Paul and Barnabas returned to uh, Antioch in Syria, uh, from which they had gone forth on this first missionary journey, and they told everything that happened, everybody rejoiced at what was happening. But then people came down from Judea, from Jerusalem presumably, uh, who were Judaizers, that is, and it says that they were they were Christians, but they were uh, from the Pharisees, and so they had the idea that for these Gentile people to be saved, it was not enough to believe in Jesus. Yes, great, believe in Jesus as a Messiah, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to observe all the ceremonial law of Moses, or you cannot be saved. And so that was the issue that that uh, had come forth. And as we'll see, there was no small dissension about this, because the question is, can, can non-Jewish people uh, enter the covenant people of God without going through the Old Testament, Old Covenant uh, laws and ceremonies that God had given his people through Moses. So that's the theological and practical question that gets addressed in this chapter, in this council that will take place in Jerusalem. So the idea that Gentiles are included in the kingdom is a given amongst most, if not all, of these parties, right? They're not saying that, well, we should keep out the Gentiles. What they're saying is, well, if the Gentiles are going to be part of us, well, then we should, uh, we should, uh, they should first become Jews. Uh, that's, that's the correct way to understand it, right? Or do we have some, maybe perhaps some, some ethnic uh, biases going on also? 
Well, I think ethnic biases are, are can be part of the mix, but the, the theological question really is, can Gentiles come in uh, directly and be full-fledged members of the body of Christ, the church, without first becoming Jewish, as you said. And so, and, and that was what they were accustomed to, you see, because in Judaism, if, if you had outsiders that wanted to be, become part of the people of God, you had proselytes of the gate and proselytes of righteousness. And a proselyte of righteousness would be somebody who went full, full tilt and not only you know, learned about the God of the covenant uh, made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also was circumcised, uh, followed the dietary laws and so forth. So that's a proselyte of righteousness. A proselyte of the gate would be somebody who did believe that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the true God, but did not get circumcised and do everything. And so in Israel, they would have been sort of second-class citizens. They would not be full, considered full Jews, full uh, sons of the covenant and all of that. And so we've already seen earlier in Acts where they were brought into the kingdom, Cornelius and, and others like that, that had accepted the God of Israel as the true God. And when God pours out the Holy Spirit on, on him and those who hear the gospel preached by Peter, that's a, a big turning point of its own. But some of these people coming down from Jerusalem who were uh, Pharisees, who had come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, still were clinging to that idea that um, if you really want to be saved, you have to become a Jew and uh, a completed Jew, if you want to use that kind of terminology, one who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, but faith in Jesus is not alone. For them, you need to have the works of circumcision, the uh, other ceremonial law of, of Moses, or you cannot be saved. And so this is, this is not just a minor detail, you see, because if, if it's faith plus something else, then it's not you know, salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So that's the crucial theological uh, problem that has to be addressed head on in order to avoid there being division in the church. So there would be one church that's Jewish, one church that's Gentile, and two ways of salvation uh, or two different opinions on the way of salvation. And that will not do. We have to have the one truth of the true gospel from Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and to know that it unites us. Whether we're Jewish or Gentile in our background is not the crucial thing. Uh, and that's what gets addressed in this chapter. Let's take a step, just one more, <laughs> one more uh, step backwards. And, and we see here that when you consider the Old Testament, you consider things like the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, that God makes promises to bless all the nations of the earth. And yet, you don't see an effort by the Old Testament people to proselytize and inculcate other nations into the one true faith. You see a lot of, of course, staying unstained from the other nations, but you don't see a lot of so-called evangelism, as we might call it today. So some scholars have seen that the inclusion of Gentiles is more of a progressive revelation that unfolded over time, 
whereas others say that, no, it's it was laid out from the beginning of creation. We even find it in Genesis that the Gentiles were always to be a part of God's kingdom. Where do your opinions or your, 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 your educated opinion, where does that lie in that debate? You know, did God not reveal to them fully the inclusion of Gentiles, because we see that such an emphasis in the New Testament, or has this always been the case from the beginning? Well, it was clear, clearly in the Old Testament, because that's what settles the matter when we get later into this chapter, <laughs> when they right. quote the prophecy of Amos. So yes, God had revealed it, but it, it didn't dawn on them. It didn't fully, they didn't fully understand it and fully realize it. Just if you think about the sacrifice of Christ, the suffering and death of the Savior is clearly revealed in the Old Testament. But as clear as you and I see it with 2020 hindsight, the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, as they were going through the life and ministry of Jesus along with him, did not understand these things, even as they were being fulfilled in their own lifetime. It was only after Jesus rose from the dead and opened their hearts and minds to understand the scriptures that then their hearts burned within them. And they thought, oh, why didn't we realize this before? And so it is also in this case of uh, Jesus had made it clear in his words to them. The Old Testament made it clear that God wanted the Gentiles. It was his plan all along that Gentiles would uh, be included. But uh, the fact that they didn't understand it until now is happening in their lifetime. And we'll think about just a couple of chapters ago with, with Cornelius and Peter, you know, uh, when the Lord gave him that vision, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And, you know, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And this happens to him until people that he would have considered unclean are at his door. And the Lord says, don't you call unclean what I have made clean. And what a eye-opening experience that was for him, so that then he was willing to go with these people he would not have been willing to go along with before, only because God gave him that kick in the side of the head to go. And then when he went there and proclaimed the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them just as it had been on the apostles on the day of Pentecost, it's like, wow, I guess we need to baptize these people. So it's not that God had not previously revealed this to them, but it's that God is now making it happen in their time and waking them up to the reality of those uh, many, many passages in Scripture, not only about the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, uh, and but also the fact that the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations. Yes, beginning at Jerusalem. Yes, beginning with the Jews, to the Jew first but also to the non-Jews. And so it's not that God had not revealed it, it's that they didn't get it yet. But there's, there's other examples in the Old Testament too. Think of Jonah, you know, um, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Can God really care about those people? And then once he preaches the uh, word to them and it works and they repent, he's mad. <laughs> you know? So uh, we sinful human beings can be pretty stubborn, pretty thick-headed, and pretty calloused in our hearts sometimes not to understand, not to want to understand that God is very serious about wanting to save all people, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save all people. His life, suffering, and death is for all people. And if the Old Testament people tended to focus more on the stay away from those people, they're unclean, that 
kind of clouded their judgment, even in the case of the apostles. Well, let's read some of the text uh, that we have today. We've already gotten into a little bit of it, but I'm going to read the first six verses. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, uh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and in order... Uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, before we get into their consideration, you know, you've already uh, very well, uh, already done a, a very good job of explaining the, the situation. People might get tripped up, though, a little bit on verse 5, where it says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Uh, we, of course, know Paul belonged to, in a past tense, to the party of the Pharisees. Uh, these are almost more political than religious, although they're thoroughly religious too. But how is it there are Pharisees who are Christians? I mean, what are we being told here? Okay, that's a good question. And uh, as you properly said, God worked faith in Saul of Tarsus, that is better known as the Apostle Paul, who had been a very zealous Pharisee. I mean, the Pharisee's Pharisee, very extremely zealous in uh, what he believed and what he practiced. And yet the Holy Spirit got a hold of his heart and worked in his heart, repentance and faith in Jesus. And he became thoroughly, thoroughly uh, uh, full of faith and the Holy Spirit to proclaim Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior. Now, these Pharisees also, you know, they were from the same Jewish sect of the Pharisees, so they would have that as a religious background. They had apparently, since they're uh, called believers, and we'll take for granted that that means believers in the sense of being Christians, but accepting Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Son of the living God, crucified and raised uh, for our salvation. They believed that, but their religious background in uh, Phariseeism uh, still had that legalistic tint and taint to it, which is, which is not a good thing, not a healthy thing, which becomes a, a major issue here. Because even if you think about Christian denominations in our world today who become very legalistic, um, the danger is that the gospel then becomes obfuscated. The gospel becomes clouded. It becomes hidden. It becomes corrupted. And as Paul says very uh, pointedly in his letter to the Galatians, it's no gospel at all. You know, if somebody is going to say, yes, believe in Jesus, you're saved by faith in Jesus, but not by faith in Jesus alone. No, you also have to do this and this and this and this and this, or you cannot be saved. That's where these people are coming from. It's Jesus plus. Yes, 
believe in Jesus. He is the Messiah. But if you don't also do these other things, you cannot be saved. Imagine if you had somebody tell that to you. You know, you're not a Jewish person by background. Uh, maybe you've not been circumcised or observed these religious dietary laws and things like that. And we're all along thinking, well, I'm baptized into Christ. I'm saved. And then you think, oh, no. I must be wrong, particularly if these people coming down from Jerusalem represent themselves as being the authentic Christianity that we know the apostles were in Jerusalem. So maybe this guy, Paul, is second rate. Maybe he didn't get the memo. Maybe he doesn't have authentic Christianity. But well, let's tell you, brother, here's what authentic Christianity looks like. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses. Otherwise, you cannot be saved. So suddenly we have this party uh, that believes in Jesus as the Messiah and says, yeah, by all means, believe in Jesus. Get baptized. But that's not enough. That will not save you. You will not go to heaven unless you let us make sure that you are circumcised and you follow, follow all the ceremonial law of Moses. That's where these people are coming from. Now, we know that they have the wrong perspective, and that's the main lesson of today's passage, but um, let's talk about motivations, though. Sometimes the circumcision party, which certainly has is hard-headed throughout the Scriptures and persistent in their errors, no doubt, but sometimes they're portrayed as like the bad guys or the enemies, or the fact that they're being associated with the Pharisees here is really sensitive to Christian ears who remember the Pharisees as being one of the main opponents of Jesus. But are they bad guys? No one wakes up, I think, in the morning and says, I'm going to be a heretic. Wouldn't you agree that these guys weren't going out there doing this to destroy the church? They just had the wrong idea about salvation. Um, or do you see it Let's as more nefarious? Let's be clear about this. In their mind, they were not being nefarious. In their mind, they were right, and they were trying to tell the other people the right, authentic way Christianity works, just as um, the people who opposed Jesus, you know, thought that they were right. Saul of Tarsus, before his conversion, thought that he was right, and that's why he was so zealous in rounding up Christians and making them renounce Christ or throwing them in jail or even putting them to death. I mean, yes, in their hearts, they thought they were right, but objectively, they were not right. And so uh, a person who may think he is right and may be in his heart be operating from good motives, the devil can take that and use that for his nefarious purposes. So looking at this, if you don't want to be too hard on these people because you think, well, they, they thought they were right, they were not right. And in the earlier debates, they were unwilling to see the error of their ways. They persisted in that. That's why it took a council and uh, the gathering of God's people together to settle this matter. And even, as you said, some of them, even after this, uh, go on uh, troubling the church. So that's why you have the letter to the Galatians, for example. Paul addresses it in Galatians. He addresses it in Philippians. He addresses it in his letter to the Colossians. This comes up again and again that there were those who would say that Jesus is not enough. You need to do this. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. And when a person persists against better knowledge, it is nefarious. Uh, and, and certainly it's, it's, it's acting as an agent of the devil. False doctrine 
is poison. False doctrine, especially when it affects the gospel as it does here. This is the, the chief teaching of the Christian church, salvation by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And when that is attacked, when that is corrupted, when that is um, compromised uh, by people, even if they have good motives or claim to have good motives or convince themselves that they have good motives, this is of the devil. And that's why it gets addressed as strenuously and as clearly as it does in the scriptures. Again, read Paul's letter to the Galatians, read Paul's letter to the Philippians, read Paul's letter uh, to the Colossians and see how he talks about it there. He talks about these people as dogs, people who are mutilators of the flesh, uh, who take pride in human works and so forth. And he minces no words. And, and for example, in Galatians, he's, you know, who has bewitched you? Uh, I'm uh, astonished that you're deserting the true gospel for a gospel that's no gospel at all. And that's, that's what he's saying, because if one really believes that you're saved by Jesus and something you do, and that that something you do contributes to, earns, merits uh, God's grace and, and salvation, and you trust in that as your righteousness before God, you will not be saved. So that that's the exact opposite of what these guys were saying. They were saying, you will not be saved unless you do these things. And the truth of the scriptures is that if you trust in these other things that you do for your righteousness, you're barking up the wrong tree. Christ is our righteousness, his perfect life, his suffering and death in our stead, his victorious resurrection. This is where we find the true peace, the true righteousness that we have with God. So a couple of things are coming to my mind, and, and the first of which is, you know, you're right, by the time of Galatians and these other things, this is after they had been admonished, after the decision had come down from Jerusalem, after they had been told time and again to repent of their errors, uh, that, yeah, he didn't, he didn't hold back. Uh, regardless of their intentions, it's important, I hear you saying, and I certainly would say, that you have to address false doctrine. You can't just say, well, they're well-meaning, or they, they have the right idea, but they just have the wrong approach. You really can't give an inch. With that said, though, I do want to emphasize here at sort of the beginning of the controversy, it's hard to let go of, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of understanding, even if it's misunderstanding. And so I, I see two sides of the story. I see well-meaning people who come in with errors, but then, of course, any uh, mitigating or factors that, that come with their well-meaningness go away once they're admonished and they refuse to repent. So I think it speaks to how we have to deal with these things today. There are going to be errors. There are going to be errors by people who kind of just don't know any better, and they, they have the best of intentions, and how do we address that? But then also, what do we do when, of course, they refuse to repent or refuse to drop those errors? That's something to deal with, too. And we, and we see that going on really, really early on in the Church, which is also fascinating. It certainly is. Uh, and we might have a rose, look through rose-colored glasses when we look at uh, the early church and have the idea that there never was any kind of disagreement. But we see here that there certainly was, and we see the godly way of dealing with it. 
Well, I'll tell you what, right now we're at our break, so we're going to take that break. But folks, don't go anywhere. When Pastor Worth and I come back, we're going to pick up right where we left off. Uh, but otherwise, we'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Warren Worth, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri. Folks, over the air, as a podcast, online at kfuo.org, or using the KFUO radio app, no matter how you're connecting with us this morning, I'm just grateful you're here. And if you have questions or thoughts about the show, you can reach me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook at Phil Boo. Well, Pastor, before the break, we really hadn't even gotten into how they responded. So I'm going to just go ahead and pick right back up with verse 6, oh, through about verse 12. Here we go. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, I'm just going to pause right there. It's sort of in the middle of the action. But... We have him pointing forward that, listen, they have experienced what we experienced, what we didn't experience before, and that is this gift of the Holy Spirit. Why would we make it harder for them to become saved as opposed to us? Is that something, after you explain a little bit about that, and I think we've done a pretty good job so far, but but do you think that's something that still happens today in some ways amongst even Christians? Well, the Holy Spirit is certainly given to everybody who is a Christian or you wouldn't be a Christian, right? The Apostle Paul writes in his first letters of the Corinthians, no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit certainly works through the gospel in every Christian's heart. The signs and wonders 
the miracles, the speaking in tongues and things like that. God has not promised to every Christian in every age, and so one needs to be on guard against those who turn that into something you have to do or you cannot be saved. There's a uh, certainly a legalistic bent among some Pentecostal groups uh, to this day. But I think as we're listening to, meditating upon what happened at the council, what was spoken by Peter, what was spoken by Paul and Barnabas, pay attention to what is said and how it is said. It's all about God's doing. God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear. God, who knows the hearts, gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. God made between them and us. God cleansed their hearts by faith, you see. And now what's going on by the part of these as you were trying to say earlier, perhaps they were well-meaning uh, Pharisees, and they're, but they were wrong-headed. They were wrong, and they were not following the truth of the gospel. They were actually putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of these people that even these uh, born and bred Jewish people were not able to bear, a yoke that they were not able to keep. The law does not save. And, and you know, whether you're talking about the people in New Testament times or talking about you and I today, the, the, if you become legalistic and self-righteous and you have this idea, I have to do this and this and this and this, and there are church bodies that will tell you you have to. Faith in Jesus is fine, but it's not enough. You also have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. Maybe as you have to speak in tongues. Maybe you have to have some other kind of evidence that God is really working in your life. Maybe you have to be perfectly sanctified and stop sinning entirely. The harder you try and the more you fail, the more you're going to be discouraged. You will become despairing to say, oh, God, I must not be a Christian. I'm not good enough. I guess I'm not going to be saved. You know, that's why it is so important that it was straightened out in the early church and should be straightened out for us in every generation. It's what the Reformation was about, right? That we should get back to this central article of the faith, that we're saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by the works of the law. And whether those works are getting circumcised or if we turn faith into a work as if it's my doing. I have to open my heart and, and ask Jesus into my heart. I have to make him Lord of my life. You know, people talk that way, and it's not correct. They're making it sound like it's something we do instead of realizing it is a gift of God. The gift of God, salvation is a gift. Even the faith to receive that salvation is a gift. And let's be sure, when we're talking about, uh, as Peter does here, when he talks about that they're saved by grace and talking about their hearts being cleansed by faith. Faith is a gift. And the nature of faith is that it receives. Faith trusts God's promised mercy in Jesus. Faith receives what God gives us and what God promises us in Jesus. His righteousness, his holiness, his perfect life, his sacrifice on our behalf his glorious and victorious resurrection. These are given to us, and the benefits of that are given to us in the gospel. Faith receives. So uh, we need to be very, very clear about that and not turn faith or even the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives into a work that we do to prove that we're worthy 
So whether it's speaking in tongues, whether it's signs and wonders, whether it's thinking that we can become perfectly sanctified so we never ever sin again, we have to be on guard against Satan's wiles there to twist the truth of the gospel and make it into a lie, a deadly lie, a lie that robs us of the assurance that we have full salvation. We have forgiveness of sins, life and salvation by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by our works. And I think that's something we really have to be clear about. And it's interesting, is it not, that when Peter concludes his speech there, he doesn't say they're saved like we are. It's we're saved like they are. You see, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And so I think that's a significant way that, that the Holy Spirit moved him to say it that way and to open people's eyes to realize that um, the way of salvation is not different for Gentiles as it is for people of a Jewish background. I think one of the issues that they faced is one that we face today, and that is that there are plenty of people who say they believe in Jesus, and yet their lives reflect nothing like their faith. There, There's nothing about uh, the way they live they don't even go to church, maybe, for instance, that demonstrates from an empirical point of view that they, well, they, they may believe in Jesus, but they don't really want to do what he t- tells them to do or live in the way that he commands them to live. So I can see the frustration amongst perhaps Jews who had kept the law of Moses their whole lives to see all these Gentiles come in, and many of them are still participating in the sinful lifestyles that the Gentiles engaged in. And I, so I see that a little bit, and I think that the Jerusalem Council sees that too. I want to read, uh, starting with verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related uh, how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. We're going to end there at the end of verse 21. So we have them proclaiming just what you have been doing, Pastor, that all people are saved through faith in the same means, there's nothing extra you have to do, and so he rightfully says, my judgment is... We're not going to trouble them with this extra stuff. And then there's the but. But they need to do all these things. Abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, um, even things that Christians today wouldn't abstain from, like what has been strangled in from blood. So why this caveat? I mean, obviously we want them to live wholesome lives, but a couple of those things aren't necessarily sinful. They're not sinful in themselves, that's correct. Sexual immorality is, and that is something that gets addressed again in all of Paul's epistles in his hortatory section. He always warns every congregation against 
sexual immorality and uh, debauchery and drunkenness and other sins of the flesh, as well as things that are common to us, lust and greed and uh, hate and anger and these things as well. Um, those are sins and every Christian of every age needs to be uh, called to repent of those sins and to, by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life because God brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light to walk as children of the light. But this matter of uh, things sacrificed to idols, things strangled in blood, that would be a matter of dealing lovingly. These are these are admonitions. This is not a new law. He's not issuing new laws and commandments. This is brotherly admonition to deal in a loving way with the weaker brother. And we see that uh, in, again, the New Testament, the epistles of Paul, where the matter of our rights are addressed and that I may be right to be able to eat this particular food, but I would be willing to give up my right for the sake of a weaker brother who may uh, be led into sin, to sin against his own conscience, even if his conscience is misinformed uh, by following my example when in his heart it's wrong to do that. But he says, well, if you can do it, I can do it too. But then he, in his heart, he's sinning against God because he believes that God doesn't want him to do that. So that's what's going on here is they're saying, look, you're, we're in every city where Moses is read, you have uh, believers in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, who have come out of a Jewish background, and we don't want to put an obstacle in their path. So just as we're removing the obstacle from your path, and we're not going to burden you with circumcision and so forth, at the same time, we're going to act lovingly uh, towards our brothers and sisters in the Lord from a Jewish background who might uh, take offense and uh, have an obstacle put in their path and, and be led astray uh, from what they understand when it comes to uh, the matter of things strangled and, and blood and, and so forth. So, it's, again, it's not a new commandment. He's not, and it's not, it's not a compromise. We have to watch out for that kind of interpretation here. Like, okay, we're going to make a political compromise. You'll give a little bit on this side. We'll give a little bit on that side. You don't get all what you want, and the other side doesn't get all what they want. We'll kind of split it down the middle. You can't do that with the gospel, and that's not what they're doing here. The, the truth is stated clearly, and, and they're pointing out that the Holy Spirit made this clear already in the Old Testament, as James quotes from Amos. So he's saying what God said there is full, being fulfilled here. We see God acting, God acting through what he did when Peter preached the gospel, God acting when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, and God worked faith in these hearts. God worked miracles and signs and wonders. You want to argue with God? God is proving that he's keeping his word. He's keeping his promises. But So that these admonitions uh, for being considerate of your Jewish Christian uh, believers in various places is how love behaves. So when you have faith, the Holy Spirit also brings forth the fruits of the Spirit, which includes love, doesn't it? Love is one of the chief fruits of the Spirit, that we love one another as God has loved us. And that means being considerate and being willing to give up our rights if that's necessary, uh, not to put a stumbling block in the path of another. Very well said, brother. Let's get to their letter. 
uh, verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. All right, folks, here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well farewell. <laughs> and that's the end of verse 29, and seemingly the end of the letter, although I might argue that this is just the portion of the letter that was shared with us. I, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was probably considerably longer, or at the very least, it was accompanied by men who could tell them more about the discussion. Certainly that. Uh, we, one, it's not wrong to assume that it could, it could be, uh, this could be an abbreviation giving the salient points. That's true also of some of the sermons that you read in Acts. The sermon may have been longer than what is actually written down there, but you get the main point of each of those sermons. In this case, too, you certainly get the main point of the letter, whether it was longer or not. We don't know. This is all we have. This is what we have to go by. But you certainly made the good point. They sent this with human beings who are flesh and blood epistles, Judas and Silas, men of good report, people who were known and respected uh, by people on both sides of this issue, people in Jerusalem, as well as the people in Syrian Antioch, where they're going to go with that letter, as well as the other congregations uh, that were founded in Gentile lands. And so that they would also know that, that this is not just Paul and Barnabas. It's not a matter of personal opinion. This is the consensus of the church. And, and so to this day, you know, the church gathers in assembly, the church gathers in conventions uh, to consider theological matters and where there may be a controversy. Here we have the example of how controversy ought to be settled, that godly men discuss it, they debate it, they search the scriptures and let God have his say. And that's what happened in this case. They, there was a debate. They uh, talked about it, they searched the scriptures, and they saw this is what God is saying, and what God said already in the Old Testament, he was actually fulfilling right in their day and time uh, by what was happening with Peter's proclamation of the gospel to Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas's uh, proclamation of the gospel, and God working miracles in the hearts and lives of these peoples to make it evident that these people are not second-class citizens. They are members of the body of Christ. God has broken down that wall of division and made one body. So there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, and that is how the church is one. We have one foundation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's certainly the case here uh, that, yes, by sending Judas and Silas 
they would be able, as it goes on to say, that they were prophets, uh, creatures, you would say, who were able to expound the scriptures more fully to these people. And again, uh, verify that this is truly what God teaches. I don't want to beat the topic to death, but I definitely want to bring right back up this idea that they did still lay some so-called requirements on the people. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. First of all, that in and of itself is a is, a, is an emphasis that the Holy Spirit is working through this group. But then the requirements, we've heard them already, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Of course, a lot of those issues or those actions had had something to do with Greek Gentile culture, uh, worship even, um, um, sinful worship styles, so they're all good things. I, I bring it up to say this. So many people confuse the idea that faith should produce good works with the idea that you must work in order to be saved, or must do good works in order to be saved. Um, the pendulum has swung, right? By the time of the Reformation, it was do all of these good works and you will be saved or you can contribute toward your salvation anyway. But now in these last days, it seems like we're, we're back on the other side. It's, it's, well, you don't have to do anything. There's, you know, you're saved by grace alone with the, with the understanding that therefore you don't have to worry about anything. And, and while you certainly shouldn't have to worry about your salvation, that salvation should produce good works. And so, in many ways, I see this nothing other than what we might do on a Sunday morning, and that is to say, you're forgiven, now go and sin no more, right? Quit sinning. Exactly. And in our Lutheran confessions, I would urge our listeners to take the Book of Concord, and particularly look at the formula of Concord, which deals uh, point by point with this. It talks about faith, it talks about justification, it talks about good works, uh, and it talks about the law, the third use of the law. And I, I would urge our listeners to to read through that, and it, 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 you'll find it very helpful, because again, they go to the scriptures and see what the, the Bible the Bible says. And so on one extreme are people that mix good works with the article of justification. In other words, my good works contribute toward my salvation. That is not true. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ without works. But saving faith in Jesus comes with works because the Holy Spirit accomplishes works. Good works are the fruit of faith in Jesus the Savior. So while our good works don't save us, they don't contribute towards saving us, they are the Holy Spirit produced fruit of true faith in the true and living Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, so that, that's an important point to make. And the opposite extreme that you're talking about is called antinomianism, where people act as though the law doesn't have any uh, use for us at all today. So I can do whatever I want. I can go deliberately sinning in the worst possible way. God doesn't care. He's just going to forgive me anyway. That is a corruption of the gospel just as much as it's a corruption of the gospel to say, well, believe in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. You see, when you bring in those good works on that end, that corrupts the pure gospel. Well, when you say you can sin uh, without caring about it, just go right on sinning, God doesn't care, that also is a corruption of the gospel. That also is a corruption of the truth. 
The truth is God has saved us from sin for a new life in Christ. Think about Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may go boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. You see, so the sanctification is also God's will for you, and uh, resisting and fighting against uh, sinful temptation is also God's will for you and for me, which, again, is the Holy Spirit through the gospel that works this in us. Well, let's keep on reading, add some more verses to the conversation. Um, here is the last few verses of our text for today, 30 through 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. I love this, verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. How, uh, isn't that the goal of every sermon, is to proclaim the law in its fullest severity, the gospel in its fullest sweetness, may direct them in the way that they should live, and if the Lord should so will it that the people will rejoice because of the encouragement. I mean, this has both law and gospel, and yet it's seen as encouragement. People aren't just dwelling on the fact that, except for me maybe, <laughs> people aren't dwelling on the fact that, oh, well, now we can't sacrifice to idols or eat food that's been sacrificed to others. Oh, now we, we, uh, we have to <laughs> refrain from sexual immorality. No, it seems like they take it together as a whole, and they are encouraged, especially those Gentile believers. Absolutely, and the encouragement is that there is one holy Christian apostolic church, and in every heart in which the Holy Spirit has worked repentance and faith, there is joy to know we are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are loved by God, we are accepted by God as His dear children, members of His family. There is a place for us in our Father's house because of Jesus the one and only Savior of the world, who came for Jews and Gentiles, and that's what this made clear to them, giving them joy and encouragement, and it makes it clear to us as well. You and I are also included in God's family by grace through faith in Jesus, and we too rejoice in that encouragement. Indeed. Well, here we are toward the end of our program. Anything else you want the people to know from this, you know, fascinating turning point in the history of the Church? Had they not uh, addressed this concern, perhaps we would uh, be facing some pretty serious results, maybe a misunderstanding of salvation. But thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit worked through these men in Jerusalem, and they, well, they, they nipped it in the bud. Amen. The Lord, the Lord worked through them pointing them through the Word to the truth, and that would be the lesson for our day as well. Controversies will still arise. The devil is still trying to divide us. 
he's trying to lead us astray from the truth of the gospel. And so we must always be aware of his uh, schemes and use the weapons that God has given us, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And as we use uh, what God has given us, he leads us again and again to the truth, the truth that is found in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Warren Worth. He's the pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri. Pastor, thanks for being on the show again and leading us through this amazing text. It is my pleasure. Folks, tomorrow we'll finish up chapters 15, well, chapter 15 and head into 16. Uh, therein, Paul and Barnabas are setting out on their second missionary journey. Well, except the chapter begins with a sharp disagreement overtaking John Mark, which really leads to two separate missionary journeys. Paul teams up with Silas, and their journey takes them through Asia Minor, where they receive a divine call to Macedonia. And there they encounter Lydia, a faithful woman who opens her home to them. We're going to find out what happens and more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong hand.